Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. There has been an annual prize for poetry since 1976 for the best first book of poetry. It's called the Anne Elder Award. But who was Anne Elder and what was her poetry like? Well, to answer those questions, I have with me today Julia Hayner, who has written a biography of Anne Elder, and Catherine Elder, who has compiled a selection of Anne's verse. So, Julia, Catherine, welcome to 3CR. Thanks, David. Thank you. Now, this is a bit of a family project. Would you like to put us in the picture here? Yes, yes, well, definitely a family project. So I'm Elder's niece, uh, Kathy, who's sitting beside me, is her daughter. And actually, it was uh, wonderfully edited by my sister, <laughs> Sarah Brennan. So, um, yeah, definitely a family project, very much so. But the objective behind it, uh, in, was it to tell a family history or to put Aunt Elder's uh, legacy into a bit of a context? Well, I think it started out as both, and and I certainly started with a, a very long text which had a lot of family history in it, but my sister brutally removed a lot of it. So, yes, it's become <laughs> slightly less of a family history and more about Anne, which is quite right. <laughs> and and also, um, it's, been pub- it's been published... In the centenary year of uh, my mother's birth, so ah. in some sense, it's it's an attempt to put her on the map um, again after so much time. It's forty years since she died, so for me, that was an important aspect of putting the collection of poetry together. Right. Well, Catherine, to give us a sense of Anne's verse, would you mind reading "Midnight," which is one of the poems, please? I will. Um, very happily. This is. A lovely lyrical poem um, came, comes from her first collection and it reappears in, in this current collection called The Bright and the Cold. It's dedicated to her mother. Midnight. At night, late, I put out the dog and the bottles for milk. There in the dark elm at the gate, a strange fruit. It is the moon hung ripe for me to eat. I think then of my father, his life done, an old, dead, tired man who had not looked at the moon for twenty years. I put out my hand for that excellent fruit to nourish and steady him, but he cannot eat. I think long under the dark elm of what the night prepares for those gone from home, of all who sleep or cannot behind their myriad walls, known or unknown. I see through walls to the best known, one who sleeps light, who is near. I will put my chilled hand to his side. He will moan and turn away to fitful dreams. For close to 30 years we have lain there under the moon. I put out my hand to my young female child over the city in a room, locked in her 20 years, and to the firstborn, a man across the city in a room, his dark head down on his desk, like a child, perhaps. Their lamps and their dark eyes burn late and quiver my heart at the close and far of the moon. At night, late, the moon is a whole fruit I have wanted for 50 years. 
it does not fall to a stare. Complete, so lovely, it drips a cold nectar for me only. Now, I found this a fascinating poem. Lyric, as you say, it sort of identifies a full life. Uh, Grandparents, uh, uh, husband, children. And yet there's something sad about it, a cold nectar. What's that saying about Anne's poetry? Mm. Well, she was a complex woman of many contradictions. (laughs) And we'll get into some of that, yes. And I think amidst all the pleasure and joy of family life, there was a dark sense of foreboding, a a death consciousness that permeates a lot of her poetry. Um, Julia, do you want to add something? Yes. For the first time, hearing you read it, I thought that the moon is really her... Um, her desire to write yeah. the perfect thing, poem, whatever it is, and it's distant, um, and it's and it's dripping nectar, so it provides her with um, inspiration. But it's also unattainable. So that's really a picture of what it's like to be a writer. But it's the unattainability is also suggested there in terms of her relationship with her husband, uh, the chilled hand reaches out, sort of thing, and her own children. So it's just it's not just the inspiration. Uh, trying to attain that perfection of a of a full moon, but it's in the way she's experienced life in some ways. I think so too, and I it, you get sense of her missing. Her, we've left the nest at this stage, yes. and this unfathomable nature of her, the people around her. She feels desperately connected to them, but also somehow distant from them. Let's. Go back a bit then, uh, because we'll get on to Julia a, a bit, uh, and a bit more, um, and, and her makeup and profile. But Julia, you've provided a context for this poetry uh, in the biography, going as far back as your forebears, the family's forebears. It was a fascinating story. And you know, everybody's fascinated in their forebears. Um, well, it's certainly around about middle age or later, young people not necessarily. Um, so I was very interested in our terrific collection of letters and diaries and things that we have going right back to our forebears. And also as migrants coming out and being successful. Yes. Um, sorry, I forgot the question. Well, basically, what's the sort of influence of those forebears in yes, many ways? That, that's right. That, that did interest me, and in particular, the influence of the female forebears and the idea that Anne, in, in, the, in that period, 50s, 60s, early 70s, was having a successful, eventually a successful career as an artist and had had a successful career, short career, as a as a classical ballet dancer. So what did she have that her um, the, her ancestors didn't have? Even though they were talented in their own right, they were good writers themselves, but she got there in a sense. So I was interested to know what had happened in the different generations, what had provided her with the, Th- that impetus or impetus that creativity. To have two successful artistic yeah, Because I mean, the forebears were a bit, um, was more into engineering. There was one um, great-grandparent or whatever who was... Uh, grandfather. Grandfather. Looked to Western Australia and the uh, pipeline to Kalgoorlie and that's got a whole heap of historical association and connection Indeed. with it as well. So there's there's that 
link. And everybody, well, a lot of people in Australia have got those sorts of stories with, with family inheritance there. But then let's bring it a bit further uh, into the current day. There is, in many ways, um, a parallel between um, Raina and Anne herself. We've got two women here. Uh, Raina, her mother, uh, marries young husband, goes off to First World War. And it seems Anne had a parallel life in many ways. Marries, husband goes off the Second World War. That sort of connection there, the, the link between mother and daughter there. I wouldn't push that too far, actually. I think it's kind of coincidence and perhaps what happened to a lot of families in that the wars were kind of a generation apart. So the men of two generations went off to the war. I, I, I'm not sure that their lives were very parallel. What do you think, Cathy? Well, no, they both had very similar delicate sensibility, shall what? we say. And But I think, I think my mother was far more fulfilled than... Raina. Raina was an immensely frustrated person and my mother found a way through that. Perhaps she potentially would have been, but she found a way through it. So, uh. Well, the limitations of the age which both Raina uh, and Anne would have experienced. I mean, um, what were the impositions on Raina? Because uh, Anne was told she couldn't dance any longer. There was a, a potential tour of New Zealand, etc. She just got married. No, nope, that's it. That, the attitude towards women. Had that changed between Raina's time and, and Anne's time at all or not? Well, probably not awfully much, just at that period. I don't think awfully much no. because my mother perhaps was told to stop by my father, but I think she accepted it very willingly. I mean, with, not without anguish, but it was what you did. Yes. So I don't think she questioned that um, yes, in any way or rebelled against it. Both Anne and her mother, Raina, were very much in love with their prospective husbands. And, and, and for, so for Anne, when she met John and then they got married, that was very important, became more important than the than the, than the ballet. So it, it, in a way, it wasn't really imposed on her... her the, um, the stopping of the dancing. Mm. Mm. Um, yes. The, the poem then that took my interest, it's probably not necessarily associated, but you have the poem Two Wives. Do you want to read this or shall I? Which? What do you prefer? Well, if you have it at hand, go, I go have it right around. ahead. It's called Two okay. Wives. Born on the place, she leant slack on the gate, watching him canter, intermittently nearing the hazy brass of wattles in evening, a rider belonging to the familiar progression of daylight, who slowed at the shadowy corner and walked the last one arm hanging black. She said, you're late, swung the gate, fondled the horse, and when it was free, gave it a spank like a great bus on the rump to dispatch it to dewy paddocks, and went in from kindly falling night to cook up a wad of tripe, slapped it on his plate, said, it's tripe, and after, put herself firmly onto his lap. Bereft of city lights, nervous in this place, she strained feebly to chain the gate, trailed back in, opened and shut a book, listened, tinkered with roses, and gazing in her glass from the white towers of Camelot, wept after him into the ominous forest, lest he should never come back hungry, and wept, tardily sweeping the grate, and listened, ashen to the crack of a tree felled long since in a dewy childhood's garden, heard its crack again and again, and slept at last like a dead child crushed in the lap of night and dreamt, leaning on a gate. 
a sort of sense again of uh, lack of fulfilment in some ways, or waiting, or anticipating. Well, there are, th- there are two wives, aren't there? And the first one is hearty and um, engaged and not too not too sensitive and speaks her mind. And the second one is sort of mooning and um, ruminating. So mm. I think you get both sides there. And it's she points out uh, in her notes that this is not two successive wives. This is two it's sides a, of herself. So, same identity. Yes. 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 So... Um, which gets us in some ways into the relationship between Raina and Anne, which is perhaps worth fathoming a little. Um, you've had quite a deal of primary documentary evidence, Julia, on this. And on page 62, you've got um, Anne's description of her mother. My mother was small, highly strung, deeply sensitive, almost neurotically pessimistic, shy and introspective. She had a sense of exile, of always being in exile and isolation, but she was essentially creative. She had painted a lot, written a little. She sewed exquisitely and had a green thumb in the garden, which was her great solace. But here's a daughter commenting quite in, in quite a detailed fashion about her own mother and those two sides in some ways. I can't see the side of the first wife having anything to do with Raina. She was all sensitivity and and periodic black moods and depression, um, which was difficult for her, both her daughters, my mother and my aunt. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, basically, it, it leads into then how much of the mother do we see in the daughter? I think the sensitivity, the fragility, the um, the prickliness at times, um, but uh, Raina's depression really, I think, hampered her. So even though she was a trained painter and did portraits and so on when she was young and in New Zealand, when they migrated and she married and they migrated, all that disappeared and she did not pick up that side of her artistic endeavour again. Um, whereas Anne... And Anne was not so retiring. She was not shy. She, except on some occasions, at some points, um, she was prickly, could be prickly with people. But she was, in some ways, quite. She was force could be very forceful and outgoing. They were a bit different, different in those regards. And I think that forcefulness in Anne, maybe her rages, her temper, her um, prickliness, and then her coming striking out, that that was a bit of an engine that galvanised her um, and made her able to take up those two careers. And I think, too, that the fact that she'd done the ballet, I think that gave her some a great confidence in the whole um, artistic world, uh, both physical and mental. And, um, yeah, I think that was quite important to her being very determined about her subsequent writing career. Yes, she had discipline mm. and she could see things through. Mm. Um, she learned a way of bringing things to fruition, which my grandmother didn't. But there's also understand. then a suggestion. Um, I mean, uh, Anne, uh, part of the irritation of nerves that Anne suffered from may have come from her precarious health, which often prevented her from doing what she wanted. And there was a secret. April had been told by her sister while they were children that their parents had done or said something terrible to Anne, which had destroyed her life and now you have this suggestion 
of something that's happened in the relationship, which we never really fully discover. What was going on there, perhaps? Any any revelation? Know. I'm afraid we don't know, David. It was some <laughs> remark that she made that she couldn't forgive her parents for something, and we don't know what it is. It's just and the first thing. I heard of it was when I read it in the biography, so it wasn't something that... Was ever mentioned in the home? No, or that perplexed me or anything because I didn't know about it. And yet how much of an influence would it have been in Anne's psychology and makeup in some ways? Well, it's very hard to tell because it's, it's, she says there's a secret that concerns both her parents and yet really her relations with her father remained very good, I think, till the end of their lives. Her relations with her mother were more difficult then her mother was depressive and that was difficult for both the daughters, as I said, and they did have awful quarrels, mother and daughter, and my grandmother was terribly hurt by these. She so, was ang very angry with her mother, I yes, think. Yes, And she, she had, there were terrible rages. But I don't understand where this came from and I don't know about the dark secret and I don't even care to speak well, I'm, no, I'm almost right. verging on um, how would you put it well the psychological makeup shall I say and the stability of that um, is perhaps a delicate question to be asked then um, in terms of both mother and daughter there mm. um, Anything you'd like to... Well, I'd like to read a passage, actually, about yes. this. Um, it, it comes after my description of a lifelong disease that she suffered from, scleroderma, which was not, um, it was not uh, diagnosed until she was dying, actually. Um, and that was a, a, a full-body disease that meant that she felt ill every morning when she woke up. Um, her she, her fingers and toes were always cold. She didn't have good circulation. Um, so this was a kind of suffering that she endured all her life and should have been quite an impediment to many things, but she moved through it. So I'm going to start reading here. These afflictions, the scleroderma, go some way to explaining Anne's irritability and even rages. Add to them a depressed and nervous mother and an inheritance of mental instability from the Bells, who were her maternal forebears, and one can understand why there would be a significant emotional disturbance in Anne and why she had a recurring fear of madness. Um, and then there's the, the secret that we don't know about. And her son David suspected she suffered a deep-seated fear, even a sexual fear and repression, I don't know about that, um, she was unable to talk about. Um, which would make her oversensitive to many incidents in her life. She was definitely oversensitive and could be quite hysterical in her responses. She would tell David about experiences of 20 or 30 years before that still made her cringe with embarrassment, is the sensitivity. Uh, in fact, both Kathy, John and Kathy witnessed some quite psychotic episodes um, where she fixed on incidents with extreme anxiety and inflated them to huge proportions. Those were moments in her life that was not something that happened often uh, or um, continuously at all so per moments. periodic moments that mm. that occurred mm. but how much did this influence creativity well that i think i just left as a question i just don't think i could answer that would she have been a better poet if she hadn't been so hysterical and so sensitive or was the sensitivity the crack in her that that meant that influences could well, she, it, enter 
she used it as a as a means of of exploring her own identity. But there's a poem that's quite interesting at Harworth. Um, I probably won't read it all, even uh, just the ending. They've visited England and the Bronte home, uh, but the, uh, there's a sort of uh, description of the moors, the house, and the narrow house that some have seen as morbid, damp. I could move in tomorrow, except it is full. And the poem ends, Emily, look, I am kneeling, soaring my wrists on the broken glass of this stammering spring, and on the words, in envy. It's more than just identifying with the Brontes and that scene from Wuthering Heights where the spectre comes is coming through the glass, disturbing people. It's, a, it's an identification completely in many ways. Almost a hyper-identification sometimes, I think. And, uh, and the house is full, as in the Brontes still there. She sees, what, yes. sees them? Is that going too far? Or what, what? Well, she says, I am Emily Bronte. That's the title of one of the chapters. You mm, know, she, exactly. Yeah. Yes. It's, I don't know about more than identifying. It's definitely identifying with Emily Bronte. And she loved um, Wuthering Heights and Emily Bronte's well, writing, it's, of em, course. Yes, it's, it's very powerful, that mm, evocation mm. of a, a sort of spiritual connection. Mm. But there's one thing to identify, well, to look at it, to realise it, to appreciate it, to perhaps place yourself in that position. But this is to an extreme of my, it, I'm, I'm Catherine trying to get through the window because it's Catherine's wrist that the narrator has. She was has. an extreme person, Anne. She was definitely extreme in many ways. But it's also um, quite interesting because Emily, of course, was a rebel um, and there was this, uh, this, and the characters in in Wuthering Heights are, are, are beyond ordinary society, certainly in ordinary Victorian society. So that was a side of Anne that was also important. She, she, she could be really different and breaking the bounds. Like in her tempers, she went beyond what, entirely beyond what was acceptable behaviour. But, but in her interests, her ideas, the way she carved through life, her criticisms of art, for example, she was always, her opinions were her own. She was right. breaking bonds. But uh, there's also the mention of envy, the last, you know, she did feel this, envy of other artists when she saw something a bit a picture or something she loved she she had this desire to express herself and this feeling that she couldn't quite get there and so she was you know overcome with envy at the Spe- the a spectacle bit, of other of beautiful art going, and beautiful a creation. A bit like the moon again. Yeah. The moon reaching out for the moon. Yes. Yeah. But this notion of going beyond boundaries would now be deemed, well, to put it in a context, that the frustration women had because they were um, constrained, you know, your husband says you can't, fine, etc. Those sorts of constraints and trying to break those. But she went beyond in other areas and sometimes completely lost her temper with Cathy. Once when Cathy was a child chasing her into the living room and bearing down on her, brandishing a heavy pressure cooker lid. Then she stopped glared and said that the only reason that she wouldn't brain the child was that she looked so pathetically craven cowering in a corner. Uh, we are now entering a domain here that, um, yes, uh, is quite challenging the contemporary day. If I were still registered as a teacher, I would be uh, in duty bound to 
report such an incident sort of thing, but that going to such extremes. Mm. Mm. She was an extreme person. I, I remember these events, of course, with some anguish, but they're very distant for me. And I think, um, yes, it was difficult growing up in the house, but it also was, I don't want to overemphasise the... Um, the peculiar aspects of my mother, because I also had a very stimulating and happy childhood as well. Yes. There were these things happening at the same time. So I just wanted to emphasise that. She did have terrible tempers. I did suffer. I had to leave home to get away and find myself. But she, I felt lucky to grow up in this very um, beautiful house and garden with a, a woman with such beautiful aesthetic sensibilities and such a stimulating mind. Well, the aesthetic sensibility yeah. does come out in the poem and we're going to have to start rounding things up uh-huh. here and maybe we've overemphasised that sort of mm. extreme nature, but it's a compelling force. There was a, a poem you wanted to read as a uh, way of concluding things. In a tranquil fashion. In a so- tranquil fashion. What have we got there? Julia, do you want to read the... Yes. It's a poem that I... Hasn't been collected before in either of her previous books. Right. Yes. So it's a poem called Grass. Simply, it's the second last poem in the collect the poetry collection, and it starts against the chest of the earth. Down in the paddock, I lay with my face in the grass, and I heard something say, "Come." So I went quietly into the forest of grass that grew in its great variety, some tall, some less. Out of a corner of eye I saw a great copse of mauve grass ears and heard the creek, its flow and lapse. The noon was all about me through panes of green. I walked minutely in a palace, half blurred, half seen. Come, said something still, and I went quietly, arm in arm with an insect, into the grass roots of me. I mean, there's a compelling poetic voice there uh, when you read uh, some of her poetry. Um, Even that opening poem, Journey to the North, vagrant sea ranging up from Antarctica, scoops at our southern capes with bold blue polar pores. I mean, the scale and scope of some of what is in poetry, Mm. the lyricness in some instances, but there's that suggestion of also the unattainable there's a downbeat on a lot of the poems that where they end as if that lack of fulfillment is there as well so what then is Anne's legacy do you think oh what a difficult question well we may not have time to answer there is of course the practical outcome of the award yes can you tell us something about that Yes, well, the the award, as you mentioned at the outset, was set up in 1977 by my father to honour my mother's memory because she died tragically very young at 58. And ever since then, for the subsequent 40 years, there has been an award, an annual award for the best first book of poetry. And I should mention that the uh, the current award the, has just been announced, the opening, not not the winner, but the next round of the award. The so if people have a... Book of Poetry published um, last year. They can uh, look they might up. look at Australian Poetry's website and uh, see how Look up enter. the Anne Elder Award and see how they 
can That's apply. Right. We're going to have to conclude it there. Ruminations is waiting at the door. So I'm going to play uh, a little song to get, it, get us out of here. We will be back next week. Sorry, Julia, quick. Just if people want the books, yeah. oh, they yes. can get them from readings, online from readings, or they can order them from the website buckrich.com.au stroke sales. And that leads us out for another week. See you next week. Thank you all.